amazing thing that because so many of us know Jesus, we can get in a room and shake hands and smile and hug and sing and pray and share burdens and lift them up together to the Lord. I mean, we have this thing that unites us that's so much more significant than football or music or movies or video games. Like, it just permeates our whole being and then makes us into this body where wherever we go, we meet with one another and we can do this. I'm, I'm so thankful to God for the privilege of being here with Springfield Baptist Church and feeling like I'm just with family. It's amazing. Um, let me pray and then we're going to start. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank you for this week that we've just finished We thank you for the highs and the joys, and we thank you for the lows and the pains, because we know that you are at work in all of it. We thank you for delivering us from evil all week long, making us conscious of our desperate need for a Savior, and for bringing us, however you've done it, bringing us here this morning to worship and to hear from your word. Holy Spirit, we we beg you to be in our midst. We pray that you will be in this room, that you will anoint me as I speak and all of us as we listen. And Jesus, we ask that you would show us yourself today. And we pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to uh, Genesis chapter 3. Last week, if you weren't here, I'll, I'll catch you up. Um, we, we, I decided that since uh, I've only got a short time with some of you, the easiest thing to do in a short time would be to try to increase in our gospel fluency. So I'm taking it for granted that most of us understand fundamentally what the gospel is but that all of us can benefit from cultivating a deeper understanding of what the gospel is and maybe looking at it in a, in a slightly different way. So normally, I think the way that we learn the gospel in Southern Baptist churches is we learn it doctrinally and systematically. So you learned the Romans road or you learned the gospel in some uh, kind of mnemonic way that you're able to recall it long enough to maybe get through junior high. And then by the time you're 30, it's a little harder to say, well, the gospel is this. But one of the ways that I find we can increase in fluency is by rather than looking at things doctrinally and systematically, we can look at them thematically and in a narrative way. So if we understand the story of humanity and God and our relationship with him, sometimes it's a little easier to remember what's significant about the gospel. So we started in Mark 1.1. We just looked at that verse and, and said that the gospel is just all it means is it's good news, right? And then I put before you that I think for news to be good, it kind of needs to have its operation in a difficult or a dark space. And the way that we illustrated that was, let's say you have some kind of a physical symptom of an illness or cancer or something like that. And there's this period between you discovering that you have this symptom and you getting a diagnosis where you just assume it's the worst thing possible. 
And then sometimes, by the grace of God, you get the diagnosis and it ends up being no big deal. And then that's really good news, right? Then I said, to understand and appreciate the good news of the gospel, what we really need to do is understand and appreciate the bad news of sin and the fall. So we spent all of last Sunday just looking at that. Genesis 1, we saw that God created and it was good. Genesis 2, we saw that God commanded and it was for our good, that the deepest satisfaction a human being can experience is always found in obeying God. And that's why he gave us a commandment. And then in Genesis 3, we saw that Adam and Eve sinned and that everything as a result is broken. And that's really all we did last week. We did go to the cross just so that we didn't leave hopeless. But we left understanding that sin has plunged all of humanity into the malaise of fear, shame, and guilt. Right? Some of you remember that. Good. So today, we're going to look at the reality of life after the fall and examine some ways that we tend to deal with that reality left to ourselves. So we'll pick it up in verse 14 of Genesis 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. From, for you are dust, and to dust uh, you shall return. We'll leave it there. And look, if you find it hard to even listen to that passage being read, because it's like the language isn't the way we talk to one another, I want to just simplify it real quick for us so that we understand what's happening. You got to deal with a couple of things in Genesis 14 through 19. Number one, you need to deal with the curse. And number two, you need to deal with the covenant. Make sure that you understand those two things are there. So the serpent, um, how does this work? Animals don't talk. And there are those that would like to think that they did before the fall. I'm pretty sure that they didn't. So it's my opinion that the serpent was possessed somehow by Satan and used somehow by Satan to speak to to Adam and Eve. Um, The serpent evidently, snakes used to walk. Um, They didn't slither the way that they do now because they had feet. You got to give me a signal if I'm doing that. She told me last week, because I, I want criticism, right, about how I do this. And she said, you fold your arms a lot while you're preaching. And it makes you look unapproachable and angry. So <laughs> I want to not do this. So give me a good throat clearing or something. Uh, <laughs> the serpent, I think, was just a tool 
that the devil used to accomplish his purposes in the garden. Um, Eve, listen, this is important because these, these are things that I think that you should know about me so you can decide if you're going to listen to anything else that I have to say. All right? Eve is not, was not, more deceived than Adam in the, in the garden. All right? And it bothers me when guys use texts like this one or 1 Timothy 2.14, or is it 2 Timothy 2.14? where he says it wasn't the man that was deceived, but his wife. Anyway, when people use texts like this to say that, you know, Eve was dumber or Eve is somehow more responsible, if you look at verse 6 in chapter 3 of Genesis, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and then what's that say? And gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. It doesn't say she ran and found him. It says he was with her, right? So don't get it twisted, fellas. Adam seems to have been standing there while his wife was deceived. Thank God that hasn't happened since. (laughs) Right? Oh, wait. Um, That's not the point. I don't have time for this. The serpent was cursed as a permanent illustration for us of what ultimately is going to happen to Satan after the judgment. So I don't like snakes. I don't understand people that like snakes. But I don't believe the Bible is teaching us that there is anything inherently more evil about snakes than the other animals. And to prove it, those of us who love dogs have to contend with the fact that the Bible uses some pretty net negative language surrounding dogs too. Right? So I can't make a biblical case that snakes are more evil. I can make a personal case that they are. Um, Verse 15 is the gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So God puts warfare between the devil and man. Between man and Satan, there's, there's warfare from this point on. And he promises a deliverer. So the language that's used here, bruising on the head, bruising on the heel, describes the the, the Redeemer suffering and dying before being raised again at the hands of sinful people under the influence of the devil. That's, That's the serpent bruising man on the heel. But ultimately, because Jesus is raised from the dead victorious, the serpent, the devil, is crushed under Jesus, under the Redeemer. Um, So God created. It was good. God commanded. It was for our good. We sinned and broke everything. God covenanted promising a Redeemer. That's what we've got so far for the gospel. That's where we're at. So let's look at the curse of creation because you have to deal with this. Um, Verse 17, then to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife (laughs) and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it will grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. I have to throw this in at no extra charge. We think we've defeated some aspects of the fall, right? 
because all of us could go home right now, crack open a loaf of bread and eat it without breaking a sweat. Right? But what happens if you eat bread is it turns into sugar after you've consumed it. And all of that sugar, because we're kind of not very active, gets stored around your midsection as fat. And then you go to the gym and get on the treadmill. And what do you start doing? You start sweating because you ate bread. Anyway, just because we haven't defeated the fall. Uh, Till you return to the ground, so that means everybody's going to die, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So because of sin, everything is broken, and what I like to do is organize everything into three headings. So everything, the word everything that's broken, we're going we're gonna to organize that into three headings. So if you're taking notes, now is a good time to start scribbling or drawing so that I think you're taking notes. Um, the first thing that we want to look at is the divine relationship. So Adam and Eve are created. They're put in the garden. They're given a mandate to subdue the earth, to multiply, right? They have perfect communion with God, their creator, in that moment. The moment that Eve sins and takes from the tree that was forbidden and eats the fruit of it, that relationship with the creator is broken. It's fractured. It doesn't work anymore. It's not like... It's not like they have no relationship with God. But think about it like this. If you're, um, where's the sun right now? I don't know. It's over here, right? Like right over here? Okay, so imagine we're back here tonight and the sun's over here and it's setting. It would be pouring through these windows. Is that right? So, okay. Um, So if we drew a curtain across the door there and the windows, you'd still be able to see light coming through the curtain, unless it's like a theater blackout curtain. Right? Most of our curtains, though, you can still see light coming through. And in the same way, Adam and Eve still have a relationship with God, but now it's veiled. Now it's been dimmed. Now it's harder for them. Okay? So the divine relationship is broken. Isaiah 59, verse 2, the prophet says this, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's humanity after sin and the fall. There's there's a division between us and God. Here's the doctrine of our culture. See if you can follow this. I think this this pretty much summarizes what the world around us thinks. There is no God, so there is no ultimate authority on morality. That's our culture. You crawled out of the primordial ooze and evolved from a monkey person, but you still somehow have value, and murder is bad depending on whether it's a drug dealer in Minneapolis or a baby. That's our culture. Because the divine relationship is broken. We don't relate to our creator the same way that we used to, and nothing else works like it should as a result. We don't think right anymore because we are out of communion with God. The thing for which we were ultimately created, which was fellowship with the creator, is not happening the way that it should anymore. So that's thing number one that's broken, the divine relationship. Thing number two, human relationships are broken. We saw this last week when Adam and Eve covered themselves in in shame from one another, right? Before God showed up, they were making fig leaves to cover the important bits. 
because the human relationship got broken by sin. We see it here when God implies that part of the problem is that Adam listened to Eve. Well, before sin entered the picture, there was no problem with Adam listening to Eve and no problem with Eve listening to Adam. But because of the fall, because of sin, now this dynamic is broken as well. We see it in our own lives. All of us can think of relationships that used to have vitality and meaning that filled us with purpose and and there was mutual love that now are mangled. Those relationships are mangled by sin. And I know it's not your fault, it's theirs. But the point is, you can appreciate this experience, right? It's because of the fall. We see it when someone should love us and won't love us. So children that aren't loved by their parents. That's because of the fall. The human relationship is broken. Husbands and wives don't love one another. We see it in murder, adultery, stealing, lying, and coveting. Third, so we've got the divine relationship. We've got human relationships. Third, the earth is broken. Like creation, just in general, nature itself is broken. We see this when tornadoes rip through neighborhoods. We see it in earthquakes, floods. We see it when fires are swallowing up life and property. We see this when we try to plant a garden and literally anything but what we want (laughs) grows. It's because earth is broken. In Romans 8.22, Paul says this, We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Well, why is all of creation groaning? Because it's been subjected to futility. Because the fall broke everything. And by everything, we mean the divine relationship, the the horizontal relationships, and all the things that the earth is possessed by. It's, it's, It's not even up for debate. Like, ask the $1.3 trillion pharmaceutical industry if everything is broken. Ask the $200 billion a year mental health industry if everything is broken. Ask the $700 billion a year healthcare in general industry if everything is broken. The lost and dying world even acknowledges that things are broken. Look at your own house. <coughs> As I, well, here, there's a perfect example, right? <laughs> but I'm sitting here preparing my sermon. This sitting not here at home preparing my sermon and behind my computer monitor, there is a screw popping out of the wall in my basement. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's either the house is settling more and so a screw popped or the foundation's cracked and the next big rain we get, I'm going to be up to here in water and lose everything. We know everything's broken, right? I'm not a pessimist. I just try to expect the worst case scenarios. Look at your own suffering. Things that work don't work like they used to, right? Those of you who are over the age of 40, now you go to bed and you somehow injure yourself in your sleep. You get up in the morning and well, that, that hurts now forever. It's because of sin and the fall. What's happening is fear, shame, and guilt are ruining humanity and ruling humanity like a three-headed inexorable tyrant all the time. 
Our hearts are consumed with negative emotions because we have fallen and we spend most of our time as human beings trying to fix what's broken. And here's how I think we do it. There's four ways we try to tend what's broken or bandage the wounds caused by the fall. Right? And I'll just give them all to you and then we'll talk about them. First, there's the bandage of self-improvement. Second, there's the bandage of getting approval from others. Third, there's the bandage of filling your life up with stuff. And fourth, there's the bandage of religion. And none of these things work. All right, so let's look at uh, how, how the bandage of self works. I'm going to put this in terms that I got from a pastor in Texas named Matt Chandler. Some of you may be familiar with him, but I love the way that he says this. He says, a better version of you will satisfy. And so if I can take what I am and what I like about me and enhance and improve it, then I can bandage up what's broken because of the fall. So let me clean up my life. Let me get in shape so I'm hotter. <clears throat> let me get a better job, better grades. Let me dye my hair. Let me grow some hair. <laughs> right? If I had more hair, this would be going better. That's just a fact. Because nobody in here would have been distracted by the shine when I looked down. I'm going to learn an instrument. I'm going to get another degree. I'm going to get my life together because improving myself will fix what's broken. Look at Luke chapter 12. Wait, no, don't do that. Look at Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 12 comes later. Are we doing okay? Luke 11, find verse 24. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. And then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. This is what self-improvement accomplishes. So you get everything tidied up. You get your quote-unquote life together. The next time you stumble, you're going to go down that much harder and that much further. And there will be a next time. Everybody here who's lived for any length of time knows that you can clean it up for a little while, but you can't keep it that way. Not forever. Not like you want to. You'll never improve enough to fix what's really broken. Second, there's the bandage of others. I can gain the approval and support of other people in order to fix what's broken. So if you're younger, you can become more popular at school. If you're older, you can make your boss love you. You can make your friends love you. You can get a spouse. That fixed everything, right, Emily, Garrett? It's all better now, Grace. Jesus, yeah. You get a spouse. <laughs> but, but then we can look around the room and you, there's people in this room who don't have a spouse anymore, either because death or divorce separated them. You still got to live, don't you? You got to keep going, don't you? Spouse didn't fix 
really anything. You could have some kids. Uh, <laughs> nope. All right. <laughs> a lot of times what we think is if I just had the approval, <clears throat> if I just had the approval of this one person, can you get that person in your head? If you just had their approval, you'd be okay. It doesn't work. If I could, if I could get more views on TikTok. If I get more likes on Instagram, if I could get someone popular to follow me on Snapchat, if I could get some more retweets, look at 1 Samuel 9. So you're going to go Old Testament, not quite the beginning. If you see Psalms, you haven't gone back far enough. If you see Deuteronomy, you went too far. 1 Samuel 9. That's crazy. It's 2.30 in my Bible. Sorry. We, I'm sorry. Get it together. All right. Verse 1, 1 Samuel 9. There was a man of Benjamin. I'll, why doesn't somebody else read all these names? I'll do it. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphiah, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul. Look at this. He was a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among all the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the other people. Yeah. So Saul eventually becomes king. And he is wildly popular and so handsome. So good looking and tall. Right? In chapter 15, if you want to kind of scoot over there, there's a, there's a story that unfolds where Saul gets told after he's king to go and eliminate all of the Amalekites. And instead of obeying, he preserves all the valuable stuff in Amalek, including the king. So all the valuable stuff he preserves. Samuel confronts him. And look at verse 24. This is Saul's response. This is the tallest handsomest, most muscular, popular guy in Israel. This is his response when he gets confronted. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. He did what now? The tallest, handsomest fella in all the country of Israel was afraid of the people. Because getting the approval of other people is a never, never ending, insatiable appetite. You're never going to get enough people to approve of you that finally you fixed what's broken because of the fall. It's never going to happen. Third, there's the bandage of the world. I can fill my life with worldly stuff. I'm going to get a better car. I'm going to get a bigger house. I'm going to buy a new guitar, new sewing machine. I'll get some drugs. I'll get a better gaming computer. I'll get a PS5. I'll get the new phone. And just look down when I've touched on something. Look, just look down like, uh, I'll get some new clothes. Girls are out looking for homecoming dresses. And you get it. And it works for a minute. Right? Like the new car. What is it? Why is it when you get some new material possession you feel like a better person. 
Okay, some of you are too sanctified. You're like, I don't. (laughs) Whatever do you mean? Some of us know what we mean. You get that thing, and then a couple months later, it's kind of wore out. You're kind of not that into it anymore. Look at Luke 12, verse 16. And what I'm trying to do is show you how the Bible consistently, relentlessly, gently points out that these things don't actually work. It's not just me telling you it doesn't work. God tells you it doesn't work. Luke 12, verse 16 Jesus is talking. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. He began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do? I'm all out of space to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, it's not your stuff that's required of you. It's your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? This is what filling your life with worldly possessions accomplishes. You can never have enough to fix what sin has broken in the divine relationship, in your relationships with other people, or in your, in your surroundings, in nature itself. Fourth, should I review? I'll review. First was the bandage of self-improvement. Second is the bandage of getting the approval of others. Third is accumulating an abundance of worldly treasure. These things don't fix what the fall has broken, what sin has broken. Fourth, you've got my favorite one, which is the bandage of religion. And this is where usually after we've tried those other things, we go, ah, I know what I'll do. I will establish a moral system by which I can bring God into my debt. Instead of me owing him, he will owe me. So I'm going to do things right. I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to do my devotions every day so God has to give me a good day. It's okay. We've all thought it. We've all thought that. You, you get out the door after doing your... You spend an extra three and a half minutes in prayer beyond the normal five... And you get in the car, and the light on the dash comes on. It breaks down. Now you're going to be late to work. And your first thought is, how is this possible? I did my devotions this morning. God has to give me a good day. And I know, some of you are more sanctified than that. But you remember what it was like to think that way. I'll stop lying. (laughs) But you can't quit lying. You can't. I'll stop coveting, but you still get mad when you see somebody has something that you want. I'll never murder, but let's see how you react when somebody at work takes credit for something you did. Or somebody cuts you off on the road, on the way to church. I'll stop lusting, but all it takes is a glimpse of something that you like, and you are right back there again. Positively, I'll start tithing. I'll start serving in church. I'll start going door to door. I'll start witnessing to my neighbors. I'll put Bible verses on all my socials. I'll quit drinking. I'll never do drugs again. I'll never yell at my husband. I'll never ignore my wife and kids. I'll never disobey my parents. I'll do all these outward things so that God can't be upset with me anymore. Look at Luke eleven thirty seven. 
He should just be like maybe one page off from there. Luke eleven thirty seven. when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. Jesus went in, reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that Jesus had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, <clears throat> you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones. Did, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, for then all things are clean for you. This is the important part, all right? Woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe from your spice rack, yet disregard justice and the love of God. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. This is what the bandage of external religion accomplishes. Your life is marked by one of two things, anxiousness or anger, because you cannot control God with your behavior. That's all that external religion does for you. Why don't these bandages fix what's broken? Let's go Mark 7. We're going to start in verse 14. <clears throat> Mark chapter 7, and we're about done, just so everybody knows. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable, and he said to them, are you lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. From within, out of your heart, come evil thoughts. Satan did not put that thought in there. You came up with that all on your own. This is why Paul says we need to take them all captive. Do you know what that means? That means when a thought shows up ringing the doorbell of your brain, you don't have to invite it in and dine with it. Just dismiss it. That's not a true thought. From within come evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things come from within you, and you, look, you cannot bandage your insides. There's, there's no tourniquet you can put on your jacked-up heart from outside of you. There's nothing that you can do about this. So, like, the whole self-esteem system is a lie and you know it because it doesn't matter how many times your teacher, your counselor, your mommy, your daddy, whoever, your pastor tells you, you're wonderful and God loves you just the way you are. You're like, no, I'm not wonderful. I don't even love me. 
Because I know what's inside me. Because I see it coming out of me all the time. And it's disgusting. So you lose the weight, you dye your hair, you get a degree, and the minute you get criticized, what comes out of you? Hatred, anger, frustration. Because your self-improvement didn't fix anything. You get the affection, attention, love, and adoration of everyone around you. But let one person not think you're wonderful, and you will go to work enslaving yourself to get them to worship you. Because it's never enough to have the approval of other people. You gain all the money, all the influence, all the authority, all the power in the community, and your soul is as empty as the day you started. You can be the most moral, upstanding, sweetheart of a person on the planet. But when no one is looking, what are you really about? You're about trying to make God work for you. That's what religion does. Everything is broken and we can't fix it. And everything we're trying to do to fix it is making it worse. Amen? All right, Romans 5. <clears throat> Verse 6. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is the good news. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you see how the bad news prepares you to receive and appreciate the good news. I'm helpless. I can't fix it with self-improvement, with your appreciation and adoration, with accumulating stuff, or with my religious efforts. I am helpless. And, and God is telling you, look, at the right time, while you were helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. So what you could never do for yourself, he did. What no other person can provide, he provided. What all the money on earth couldn't buy, he purchased. What no amount of religious fervor could accomplish, he accomplished. Look right at me. A better version of you is not going to fill the profound need that you have to be whole. A better version of you won't be able to make you stop hiding in the garden from God. You're ashamed because of sin. The approval of other people is not going to make you finally drop the fig leaves and stand before humanity and be looked at. You are ashamed because of sin. You hide from other people because of sin. Gaining the whole world is not going to replace what you lost when creation was broken and you got kicked out of the garden. You can't buy eternity back. It's not for sale. Nothing on earth will fix that. And you can't be religious enough to undo the mountain of guilt that accuses you. Look at me. I know. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what you've done. And you don't know what I've done. But I am telling you, these four things are not going to fix what you've done. But at the right time, while we were helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. So here's what we got to do. Right? We did it last week. We're going to go a little bit further this week. I want you to see Jesus. And I want you to see him first being tempted by the devil. 
Come on, Jesus, bow down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms on earth. And Jesus is like, no. Well, come on, Jesus, throw yourself off the tower. Let's see if God rescues you. And Jesus says, I'm not going to test the Lord my God. And the devil says, come on, Jesus, you haven't eaten for 40 days. Turn those rocks into bread. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of my Father in heaven. And then I want you to see Jesus healing people, casting out demons, raising the dead. You know, Jesus never met a corpse that stayed that way. And then I want you to see Jesus being falsely accused, being lied about. And then I want you to see him getting hit. I want you to see him standing before Pilate, refusing to answer when he could have. He could have said, I didn't do that. I didn't do what they're saying I did. But he stood there and he took it because at the right time, while we were still helpless, he had to die. The just for the unjust. And then I want you to see him hanging on that cross, taking care of Mary and John. He's dying for their sins. And he says, mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Because he actually loved other people instead of trying to use them the way we do. Because at the right time, the ungodly had to be saved by the godly. At the right time. And I want you to see him yielding up his spirit. Listen to the quiet when Jesus stops breathing. And the darkness rolls in. And then there's a sound of some heavy, heavy fabric tearing. When the veil that existed between the glory of God and the broken humanity got ripped in half. And the divine relationship got fixed. And then this relationship starts to get fixed. And then the things that we're supposed to tend as broken, sinful people start to work the way they're supposed to. Then I want you to see the tomb. He's not there. Because he's victorious over whatever you did. I don't know what it is. You know what it is. And I'm telling you, he's victorious over it. At the right time, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. You can't improve yourself, but he can change you completely. You can't gain the approval of God by impressing people, but Jesus will clothe you in his righteousness. You can't gain enough riches to pay for what you've broken, but Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And all your religious fervor and frenetic religious activity cannot make God happy with you. But Jesus promises in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Let's pray.